Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Muscle Engineer Podcast. I am your host, Sotak Andre, and you're listening to episode 15, in which I'm about to be joined by legendary strength coach Berge Fageli from Norwegia to discuss one of his recent uh, nutrition experiments where he gave the infamous carnivore diet a try for a couple of months. And in this episode, he shares his experiences with that and his overall thoughts on it. So we recorded this episode a while ago and I honestly thought that I kind of missed the boat with this one. I just assumed that uh, by the time I released this this whole uh, craze will die off, I just thought it would be another fad, in my, if I might call it that, that people would just kind of try and then transition away from. But to my surprise, it not only hasn't died off, but it has become even more popular with um, some well-known fitness uh, figures and personalities adopting it and claiming it to be the latest and greatest thing ever. So in this episode you will get an unbiased uh, scientific opinion on it from one of the most highly respected people in the fitness industry and um, you will also get a ton of cool uh, insights into Burgess' uh, mindset and nutritional approach and uh, some very interesting considerations around your food intake and how you should perhaps vary it depending on your ancestry or time of the year and all that. And um, it was an episode that really, I guess, opened my mind even more and uh, challenged some of my, I don't know if I might call them beliefs, but certainly some views that I previously held and uh, I've since then reconsidered. And I hope that you will find it helpful and uh, a bit different from the usual uh, black or white uh, attitude around this topic. Because from what I've seen, most people either claim that this whole carnivore diet is either useless or stupid, or they claim it's the greatest thing ever and everyone should just stop eating anything else other than meat. So let's uh, start the episode and let's hear Mr. Börge Fagelli. Börge Fagelli, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And um, I must commend you on the pronunciation. That's one of the better ones uh, so far. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. We have a ton of nutrition-related topics to go through today, and one of which is your uh, famous or infamous, depending <laughs> depending on how you want to look at it, uh, zero-card experiment. And uh, in the evidence-based fitness community, I've seen you get uh, praise and uh, hate and uh, everything in between it for it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And I also listened to the podcast uh, Sean Baker did with uh, Joe Rogan, and it was it was interesting, and uh, it had some well um, dubious uh, claims in it, but it was thought provoking nonetheless. Mm, for sure. So, as a background for people, could you explain in a couple of brief words what made you start this whole uh, experiment? I guess, and um, one of the questions that I saw come up is. Why did you decide to do this or were, were there any scientific uh, reasons behind this when uh, as some people uh, formulated this, when the majority of nutritional science points to the opposite direction, a diet higher in, in fiber or in uh, veggies and fruits would be the optimal, I guess, for health and longevity and whatnot? Yeah, well, um, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm always curious about, you know, is is there something we're missing? Um, and I always want to learn more. And uh, I think the only way to move forward and to evolve and to, uh, you know, develop uh, a more um, 
rational approach to everything from diet and nutrition is to always question our beliefs. And, and, and when it comes to science, I mean, science today, research is always good to, to point us in the right directions, but, but there's also so many confounding variables with research that basing our, uh, you know, basing everything on science and research can sometimes be a little, um, hard to do in effect, but because I, I think, um, I, I do agree that the majority of science points in the direction of a plant-based diet with lean proteins, essential fats, and that's the consensus. But I don't think we should exclude an all-meat diet uh, just because we lack research on it. I have tried this type of diet both in myself and in my client and, and with I would say with variable success and, and, and obviously compared to a, a diet based on McDonald's and, and processed junk food, it's uh, it's obviously going to be a lot better. But there are still people that don't really feel good on it. And, and even despite all our knowledge and all the research and all the science and, and all the doctors and experts and, and, and authorities, um, we still have people with unexplainable diseases and uncurable diseases. And uh, even though we have... a, a a longer lifespan. Uh, I mean, longevity has improved tremendously over the last decades and and, and millennia. But but we we still have more disease and uh, and obviously more obesity than before. Now, obesity is obviously linked to well, it's it's complex, but the palatability of foods, uh, the combinations of of uh, flavors that makes us overconsume foods. Combined with inactivity, I mean that's. I think we can pretty much agree that that's one of the main driving factors behind it, and uh, and obesity also leads to inflammation, which leads to various diseases and ailments. But even then, we have uh, otherwise healthy people developing diseases and, and autoimmune disorders, where where the, the body starts attacking its own cells. And, and, and we have cancer and, and we have, uh, I mean, just stuff that we, we really can't cure with, with our modern, even our modern, uh, knowledge of nutrition and, and lifestyle. And, and so my, my journey through health and, uh, and nutrition has led me through, you know, the, the research and understanding of biorhythms. And I think most people will probably know me as the biorhythm guy. And, and I have brought forward concepts and, and ideas and theory th theories that science has only now, the last few years, begun to actually prove. And now more and more people are talking about it online and discussing it and, and accepting it. Whereas before, they were really against it and, and thought that this was just, uh, you know, bad science or, you know, we didn't have research to prove it, so there couldn't be anything to it. And uh, as I like to say, the absence of evidence doesn't mean the evidence of absence. So, so sometimes you just gotta be open to and willing to try stuff, even if science doesn't have any answers or any, you know, if, if still, it, even if there's no research actually supporting this. So that was just a long way of um, getting to the point. Um, and to, to answer your question, what made me decide to try this diet? 
I was curious. I I, uh, I listened to the podcast with uh, Sean Baker that that probably more and more people uh, know by name now since he he recently appeared on Joe Rogan's podcast. Um, I listened to his podcast on um, I think it was Corporate Warrior. This uh, high intensity training uh, guy, I would say that's because that's what what most of his uh, podcasts are about. Uh, and I was intrigued. And I started digging into this, and, and um, I read the book The Fat of the Land by William Stephenson. I looked at uh, Walter Vogelin stuff, which is, uh, you know, he's known as the father of uh, the Paleolithic diet uh, back in the 60s and 70s. Just some of the old studies, old research and old case studies. Uh, and uh, and came upon the Facebook groups where they're, you know, in the tens of thousands of people that are actually following this all meat diet, I heard about the Anderson family, a family that that's been renowned within the community, the zero carb community, where they basically both became healthy, lean, and cured various diseases. There, I just read tons of case studies, and and you know, obviously we shouldn't trust anecdotes because it can be fraught with so many uh, issues. But uh, I, I still think there's value in it. And if there's sufficient anecdote talking about something, then maybe there's something to it. And I think it, it bears experimenting with. I was inspired by that. And um, I think the main reason to actually try it for myself was that there was sort of a, a common theme in the feedback that people reported. Uh, not only did they feel more energetic uh, and, and like more mental clarity, but they reported um, major improvements in gut function, in digestion and gut function. And, and I have been struggling with uh, digestive issues and bloating and, and, and that kind of stuff for, for a long time and having variable success with um, with various treatments and, and so I thought this was something worth trying. I had also been uh, experimenting with uh, a ketogenic diet before quite un- unsuccessfully I should add and, and, and that also led to a lot of digestive issues so I thought well maybe it's the plant food maybe maybe for some reason, this is something that uh, doesn't go well with my digest- digestion, and, and maybe I should at least take a break from it. So, you know, why not try just as an experiment? Go for 30 days, see what happens, and those 30 days eventually turn into 60 and almost 90 days. So, so, so yeah, I think that's a long way of answering your uh, short question, but hmm. I hope... Um, I think it's important to provide some context. Yeah, for sure. Context is key. And um, for whatever reason, I always find myself uh, emphasizing the other two components of evidence-based practice to people (laughs) during discussions, especially around training. And I definitely experiment with training more uh, myself, but uh, I don't do these kind of uh, nutrition experiments on a regular basis like you do. And uh, maybe I should, but who knows. And as far as bloating goes, yeah... um, so I tried to put on some muscle and for two weeks or so, I had these uh, fruit muesli things with whole, uh, whole grain uh, oats and wheat and whatnot and tasted amazing. But man, the bloating, I swear I felt like a <laughs> pregnant woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's, I also came upon uh, this, um, this vegan blog. Someone had posted on the topic. 
like the bloating and the gas and and I mean there there, there were literally thousands of comments in that uh, under that blog post from vegans that have been suffering basically suffering with the indigestion and bloating and gas and flatulence and all that stuff for 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 years and and of course these are at the other end of the spectrum eating all plants and no meats and and um and I just found that, well, first of all, really funny because uh, the stories they, they would tell, I mean, about doing yoga classes and trying to hit the most difficult poses and, and basically <laughs> just, yeah, you know, so uh, you, you can you can imagine. Um, and, and so I thought, well, maybe, maybe plant, well, obviously plant foods are healthy, but maybe not in large amounts all the time for everyone. So I tend to think uh, about nutrition as individual, and I think again we should always try to challenge our own beliefs, and, and um, instead of uh, becoming dogmatic, I, I think being vegan is just as bad as being uh, a zero carber, you know. And and uh, the, the the funny thing is about you know posting about my experiment, uh, it, it just proved how polarizing nutrition can be because I used to be labeled as the carb guy just because I was uh, talking about or, or actually recommending that most people especially women you know that they, they should beware of going low carb for extended periods of time and now that I started posting about zero carb you know I become known as the zero carb guy and and, and it's, it's as if people want to put labels on you whereas in my opinion I think we should try to learn as much as possible about how nutrition affects each one of us and, and how it maybe or possibly should actually change according to our individual constitution, genetics and, and response. Yeah, definitely. We will get uh, into all of that. But I like the joke that uh, the best predictor of a leg workout is a successful pooping session. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good one. If you have a, a full stomach, uh, usually, usually those workouts don't go well and <laughs> don't end well. <laughs> exactly. And the bottom position of a squat uh, is it's, it's known for um, being the perfect way to relieve constipation. You know, there, there is actually like squatting chairs or... Squatty potty. <laughs> squatty potty, yeah, made, made for sitting in the squat position just to be able to relieve yourself more easily. So, so um, what meats did you eat? What constituted uh, your diet? Did you eat any sort of organ meats? Or um, did you take any sort of uh, supplements to counterbalance the lack of certain micronutrients that you wouldn't get from this diet? And... Uh, one other question that came up was uh, the potential overdosing of iron, consuming large amounts of red meat. And one final practical question, I'm curious, how expensive was this diet compared to a regular balanced one? Okay, so so to answer the first question, uh, I mostly ate red meat. So, you know, ribeye can be uh, pretty expensive, so I did eat a lot of ground meat. The food quality here in Norway is, is uh, you know, spectacular compared to the rest of the world. Uh, we really take care of our animals, and there are really strict regulations in terms of what we can feed animals and how we should, uh, how we can treat them. And, and there's, you know, you you can you can uh, actually get grass-fed meat without actually having to buy something with that label on it because we just prefer to feed our 
uh, cattle grass. So I, I basically just trusted that the meat I was eating was of high quality. And and, uh, and, and since ground meat is a lot cheaper than than eating like ribeyes and, and uh, those more expensive cuts of meat, I, I you know that was probably the main part of my diet. I ate a lot of eggs. I did exclude dairy for the first part of the experiment. So for the first three to four weeks, but then I reintroduced some dairy because I do like my protein powders that I develop myself and, and sell through my own uh, web store. Or not my own, I'm, I'm the product manager there now, but but still. I had some bacon, because uh, I like it. <laughs> I did uh, also consume some bone broth, and um, that, that's the, the gist of it. I, I did also have some fish now and then, but I'm not a huge fan of eating fish, so that's, you know... Uh, me neither. So I did eat it some like once in a while, but it didn't constitute a major part of it. I do enjoy some liver now and then if I prepare it uh, the right way, but not a lot of it. So so some liver, but not a lot. I didn't take any supplements at first, um, although I did at some point introduce some omega threes. So uh, fish oil, since again, I don't consume a lot of fish. As far as the question of the lack of certain micronutrients and minerals, uh, looking at, if, if you if you go online and just search, there's a comparison uh, chart of kale, blueberries, beef and beef liver. And actually beef and beef liver wins out on basically every micronutrient and vitamin and mineral. So So no, I was not concerned about that at all. I actually found uh, the coverage of micronutrients to be uh, to be better with the meat-based diet because because you actually have to consume huge amounts of plants, berries, and fruits to to cover your micronutrient needs. Whereas with meat, only like a few hundred grams is needed uh, during a given day. As far as overdosing of um, of iron, no, not really. And I did get some blood tests that actually showed my iron stores and ferritin levels to be very normal. These have been elevated in the past. So actually my zero carb <laughs> diet normalized my levels. And I haven't actually seen any, you know, you know there, there's like, huge communities online with 15,000 people in, in these Facebook groups. I'm not saying everyone is eating strictly zero carb, but there are no reports of, uh, of micronutrient deficiencies, iron overload, or any such symptoms. And, and Sean Baker uh, authored this uh, N equals many study where uh, they uh, they did take some blood tests and there were no reports of any deficiencies or or anything like that so no i wasn't concerned about that at all i mean just basically looking at the data i don't see anyone developing any uh, nutrient deficiencies or, or issues with uh, overload of any uh, any minerals at all so since i haven't seen it i i, I just consider it as a non-issue and then the final question how expensive was this diet you know i Compared to eat, eating or, or buying a lot of uh, like fruits and veggies and, and uh, all, all the food, I mean, our, our food budget was pretty extensive in the past since, you know, we're concerned about eating healthy and I'm a big guy, so I eat a lot. And looking at uh, the numbers, I, I pretty much ended up at the same cost as before simply because i i stopped buying a lot of uh you know 
veggies and plant foods and starches and all that stuff. So, so, so for me, the, the cost issue wasn't really any any problem. Yeah, and um, food in Norway is usually pretty expensive. Yeah, in Norway, meat is expensive, but uh, I mean, if if you you know, like I did, I bought a lot of uh, ground meat, and uh, you know, if you go to Sweden, you can actually get uh, meat for cheap. So um, I did do a lot of that. So you know, f- find sales, f- find uh, bulk sales, and and uh, if you know some farmers, you can get uh, you know buy whole animals for for uh, for cheap. So yeah, there are many ways you can save money if you if you really want to. Yeah, I like to uh, find sales whenever I can. It really saves a ton of money, and I'm I became kind of became famous, I guess, for uh, stocking up on cottage cheese <laughs> whenever I could. So um, if we start from the beginning and we discuss a bit the short term effects, I guess what was the adaptation period you went through? And uh, how were energy levers, and uh, how did that evolve during these? Uh, you said almost ninety days, and I've seen a couple of your Instagram posts where you said that satiety is incredible. Basically, you don't feel hungry at all and eat as much as you feel like. And I've seen you make these uh, essentially slow cooking meat, I guess. And um, one of the other advantages of that would be a ton of glycine, because we hardly get any of. Uh, any of that these days within our uh, regular diet. So I guess that's another benefit to that. Yeah, and, and uh, the controversy over bone broth and, and uh, collagen is, is still raging or even more um, relevant now that uh, we in Norway launched this myocollagen product uh, with, with collagen peptides. Uh, so I, I'm not really going to dig into that, but um, uh, the adaptation period for me was around three to four days. The hardest part of it uh, i mean the the brain fog and and uh, lethargy and all that stuff and i i did experience the heavy leg syndrome and um, where it basically you know felt like you had to drag your feet upstairs and, and especially leg workouts were horrible but um, into the seven eight day range maybe after up to 10 days i i definitely noticed i was back to normal and and from there i i would say that i only noticed improvements and as as my blood test also confirmed my crp uh, the c-reactive protein like the, the the marker of inflammation in the body just dropped right down to zero so since my inflammation improved so much um my my joint pain and various aches uh, disappeared and 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 that that probably also contributed to me feeling a lot more energetic and clear-headed but most of the adaptation for me was over within the first uh, or the second week of of this diet from there on uh, my energy levels were through the roof i would say i felt really well through, uh, during the day, I also felt more focused, uh, and you know, even though this is hard to describe, um, I, I felt more driven or motivated. It's it's really hard to to, to sort of pinpoint this because there are other variables involved. But but uh, since protein intake can and, and various amino acids can drive dopamine, maybe that's a factor. Yeah, interesting for sure. But but I would say there was a clear benefit to to my uh, both my satiety and my performance and energy levels very interesting so you haven't noticed any performance drops from the lack of carbs i did drop my rep performance so high rep 
work uh, did suffer a bit, yeah. After a while, this improved, but doing high volume work, so like doing long workouts with, um, you know, <laughs> this isn't something I, I have been a fan of uh, anyway, but I did notice that at the end of the workout, if I did some wire up training, then I, I did notice that uh, my performance started to suffer. But my, my power was much better. So so short term, short set, low rep performance was definitely improved. Interesting. I've seen your uh, before and after pictures and you were definitely not uh, fat in the before picture either. So what do you think that inflammation was due to? Because I'm not sure what your average settling point is. Maybe that was a bit too high for you or maybe it was due to some foods that weren't really agreeing with your body it's hard to say but um going from my my genetic results and i mean this is still in its infancy but i have done some like from the dna testing companies i did the 23 and me tests uh, and, and used those data and fed it into various uh, online um, interpreters and uh, just looked at uh, like various gene markers and, and all of them pointed towards me having a really low carb tolerance and going by my uh, my experience as well this this has been apparent my insulin sensitivity sensitivity is really high since i'm i i tend to stay low in body fat but i tend to over secrete insulin so i don't really handle carbs all that well even though you know i i, sh- I should be able to so so genetically and, and probably i don't know maybe it's it's uh, some some kind of um hereditary condition that that led to this but um my my previous high carb periods probably led to some sort of uh you know th- this is probably what led to the inflammation issues um because i have noticed in the past before i started reading up and becoming knowledgeable that anytime i would drop my carbs i would sort of just flush out a lot of weight in in a few days so i probably overreact to to eating carb foods and, and even during my contest prep periods where um you know um, an ultimate diet 2.0 like mcdonald's diets you know the huge carb loads always just messed me up completely i i would feel like crap and i would get reactive hypoglycemia and and i could handle the carbs looking at insulin sensitivity alone but i would over secrete insulin and, and it would drive me into uh, really low blood sugar levels so so there's probably some connection there but i i also have suspected some type of um food intolerance issues and I, i've done various tests for this and um I find most of them to be unreliable and, and uh, it's, it's really hard to say what is what is uh, you know correct and what is wrong but um, I definitely think that over time we can develop uh, reactions to foods that we eat on a consistent basis especially if if these are foods that aren't suited for our genetic makeup or ancestral you know or hereditary makeup yeah this whole um you should rotate your protein sources on a regular basis thing or you shouldn't eat the same protein source twice in a day uh, these kind of claims have been around for a long time i guess and um i probably got into some arguments over them on instagram or something they seemed one of those polyquinesque claims that i haven't seen any evidence to back them up yeah, i agree there's there's no real good evidence to back 
this up but you know sometimes when you just experience something over and over again and and there's no other plausible mechanism then you know what what are you gonna do unless there's science disproving it completely then at least be open to the idea and this has sort of been i used to be like the 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 pure scientific research-based guy but during my 20 years as a coach and working with thousands of clients you just observe things that you still don't have any good research to explain and and so you you should at least be open to the idea that well if you actually experience positive changes by changing the foods you eat then maybe even though you can't prove it then you know why not actually do it at least until some something better comes up no with that i agree completely and even if science says something shouldn't work if you do something and it makes you feel bad like that would be just kind of just like uh, shoving a card or into your hands just over and over again just for the sake of it i mean there's no point really to it so that's uh, in that case it's, that's a smart move probably yeah i agree so um speaking of uh gut uh, improvements i've heard sean say on that interview that uh, it's funny <laughs> Whenever he poops, there's just basically nothing coming out because you have no uh, gut uh, residue, I guess. So you said that your um, digestion improved and um, I guess that would be helpful for someone who has dysbiosis or uh, short intestinal bacterial overgrowth or something like that. But um, aren't you worried that this would also starve the good bacteria? And I know that the whole uh, gut microbiota and the good bacteria and bad bacteria and whatnot is still uh, at a very infancy level. But um, just from your opinion, how should we think about those uh, considerations? And uh, also, what do you think about fiber intake and the usually recommended 10 to 15 grams per 1,000 calories? Because I remember listening to a podcast, and this was years ago, so I couldn't tell who it was, but it was some older guy, and he was essentially saying that, uh, well, we should all just uh, be able to tolerate eating like 100 plus 150 50 grams of fiber per day. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> apparently he was eating these ginormous amounts of fiber, and, uh, and I'm not sure how he tolerated that. But Yeah, well... Like you say, I don't think we have any clear answers. What What is actually good and what is bad bacteria? I think every bacteria has its function and um, the balance of it will adapt to what you eat and not only to what you eat, but your entire environment and, and even to uh, your activity levels. So there are so many things involved in regulating uh, the intestinal microbiome that even though there are changes to the zero-carb diet, how can we actually say that it's in a negative direction? And, and the reason I say this is if, if someone is suffering from indigestion and, and severe digestive issues and they switch to the zero-carb diet and everything disappears and they just feel a whole lot better, then how can we actually say that there, there are negative consequences? If, if all you're seeing is positive changes, how can you actually say that there, you know, this is a negative thing? And as for, I mean, there are people that have been thriving and uh, eating and thriving uh, on an all meat diet for not only years, but actually also decades. And, and I'm not going to claim that this is for everyone, but I'm going to claim that for some people maybe a huge intake of plant foods isn't actually beneficial and not only of plant foods but also of, of starches and carbohydrates so perhaps in in our modern environment uh, with the conditions we we live under maybe eating fiber and eating plant foods and eating carbohydrates all year for everyone 
is a bad idea. So what I say in my book is that I, I now consider plant foods and, and carbohydrates to be conditionally essential for health. And, and I do agree that on a Western diet, on, on a carb-based diet, you should probably have some fiber to uh, even out blood sugar spikes and to, to feed the gut bacteria responsible for, uh, for carb metabolism. But on a zero-carb diet, I think that the changes to the microbiome to support eating a zero-carb diet can only be beneficial as long as you follow that diet. Now, I would also add that after the zero-carb experiment, and I have not only seen this in myself, but in uh, in all the clients I've coached as well. I mean, there's still some of my clients that are still on the, the zero-carb diet, but I have clients that only did it for 30 days and for 60 days and then switched over to a, a regular diet again. And they have all reported huge improvements in their uh, in, in their digestive issues. Uh, they, they can now eat foods, and I can now eat foods that I would usually get a lot of bloating and, and pain from before. So I, I think maybe there's a therapeutic effect in, in actually just starving out those bacteria that are feeding on large amounts of fiber and, and starches and, and carbohydrates. On the other side of the spectrum, I have um, I've had two I would say two particular cases of vegans that are actually thriving on a lot of plant foods and have no problems eating a lot of plant foods. And as soon as they eat, of course, this is, could also be a psychological um, factor, but as soon as they eat anything with meat in it, they feel physically ill. So, so it's hard to separate psychology from physiology, but I just think there can be some genetic or individual component here that we still don't have any, uh, any good markers or indicators of, of you know, uh, only your own subjective uh, experience with eating uh, a certain way can tell you what you actually thrive on. So again, I just want to point out that I I, I have clients thriving on a zero-carb diet and, and they feel horrible when they eat a lot of plant foods. But I also have clients that thrive on eating an all-plant diet and, and and feeling horrible when they in, introduce meats. So so I, I think 99% of arguments online could be avoided if people would just respect that. Maybe, maybe yeah, sure, we are... On a fundamental level, we are all humans, but I think there are so many individual factors to consider that we, we still don't have all the answers and, and, and we should respect that some people, you know, maybe actually have to, to uh, eat a certain way to, to feel good instead of following the generic uh, standard advice. Yeah, definitely. And that got me thinking that um, even the zealots, I guess, uh, who are, for example, very anti-carbs and anti-sugar and whatnot, they have a good point that uh, eating a ton of uh, highly processed, highly refined, super high in sugar carbohydrates all day and uh, essentially starving yourself of nutrients is probably not a good idea. Mm, yeah, we can all agree on that. So again, the vegans that I coached, I mean, uh, I had to remove a lot of the, the processed crap that they tend to eat and, and increase their protein intake. And, and, and so their health improved and their digestive function improved. So, so I mean, any diet and diet philosophy can be uh, butchered by, by adding a lot of processed crap. And I think that's where we should, first of all, look at you know our food selection try to eat whole and processed foods as much as possible and and even uh, you know talk to your grandma and, and great grandma and ask them how they prepared food because i think a lot of 
the wisdom of food is lost in in our modern world where you know we're so concerned about what's optimal that we're, we're sort of forgetting that there have been thousands of years of food wisdom developed or evolved uh, that you know where we humans just learned how to pre prepare and eat foods and sometimes we also remove completely the social aspect and and and, uh, and the enjoyment of, of things because again we're so concerned about optimal that we we stop actually enjoying it in, in the company of uh, friends and family and loved ones. Let's not even get into the whole uh, mothers have forgotten how to cook and of course their daughters don't know how to cook and all that. So um, it seems that uh, you didn't share Sean Baker's opinion that you wouldn't need a blood test if you're feeling good. <laughs> it seemed like you have done a blood test before and after. So uh, you've already mentioned CRP. What other blood ma uh, markers have you measured and uh, what were the results? Well, I wouldn't say I completely disagree with him. Uh, as long as you feel good. And, and, and there are many blood markers that uh, I think uh, we shouldn't actually be too concerned about. I mean, for years, uh, doctors have warned me about my high creatinine levels. And, and <laughs> I think we all know that if you train hard, your creatinine is going to be elevated. It doesn't mean your kidneys are going to fail. But but for me, I did it out of interest. Uh, and also because I knew that people would start asking questions. So I wanted to document what happened. So I, I basically looked at vitamin and mineral status, status and, and uh, I also checked my liver values, my kidney values. I did also get my hormones, uh, my thyroid hormones, um, and also cholesterol, obviously. I, I, I mostly noticed improvements in everything, I would say. Um, I did see a slight reduction in, in uh, thyroid uh, levels, uh, the free uh, FT3 levels. Uh, but I did also lose a lot of weight during this period, so I wouldn't expect anything less than that. And this also happened on my carb-based diet before, so I don't consider that uh, anything to be concerned about. As for hormones, I've been on uh, hormone re replacement therapy uh, for almost 20 years now, so, so obviously my testosterone levels are pretty much the same as before. My LDL cholesterol did increase, and I have covered this in my book uh, that, you know, the whole science around LDL levels and, and the cholesterol and its uh, relationship or correlation with heart disease is uh, getting more and more sketchy, especially considering that we don't, I mean, the LDL ranges and levels are uh, extrapolated from, from a westernized diet or a carb-based diet uh, and, and not on a zero-carb diet, an all-meat diet. And uh, I'm not going to go into that whole cholesterol uh, thing because, I mean, that's that's probably going to be a whole separate podcast. But if you uh, if you go to um, Dave Feldman's site, I think his name is, uh, Cholesterol Code, uh, let me just look it up really quick. Uh, he has done a lot of interesting research uh, and, and blood tests looking at uh, like LDL levels and, and uh, what happens when you uh, eat like an LCHF uh, diet, low-carb, high-fat diet, and how easy it is to manipulate LDL cholesterol. And uh, I, I think it's a great research, uh, a great resource on, on the research on, on the, um, the more modern cholesterol uh, knowledge. I would mention that he has actually made up a term called the lean mass hyper-responder where he has seen several times that lean muscular guys in hard training, when they increase their fat intakes, 
they also see major increases in LDL levels without any other changes in, in health markers or, or, uh, or risk factors. So yeah, just, just to sort of mention that. Yeah, I remember him from the Joe Rogan podcast. Uh, Sean mentioned him, I think. And uh, I've seen some Facebook discussions around this and I think Spencer Nadorski said something about LDL being useful if you keep your diet constant, something like that, if you don't have huge fluctuations day-to-day or week-to-week and he said that he has noticed the same and he experimented a bit with his diet. Yeah, and I mean Spencer is, is one of the go-to guys because uh, he has done a lot of clinical uh, or maybe not research but he has a lot of clinical data and, and uh, patients and, and just losing a lot of weight and going on diet will increase LDL levels uh, for some people a lot. So Increase, not decrease. Increase actually, yeah. During fasting and during extreme calorie deficit, some people will just their LDL levels will uh, will just increase dramatically. So you should be in weight-stable condition or, or uh, maintenance-level calories for at least two to three days before you uh, you do a blood test simply to, to normalize the, the fluctuations. Oh, so acutely, you mean? Oh, I see what you acutely, mean. Acutely, yeah. Got acutely. it. I thought it would be chronically, like you lose a ton of weight and your LDL goes up. <laughs> that would be weird. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. Well, but... Again, still there are some people, you know, at maintenance levels, leaner guys, muscular guys, training a lot, and and they have elevated LDL levels, and, and they're really concerned about that, and and he's sort of uh, looking at how this can be explained by some very uh, complex mechanisms, uh, and, and I just find the whole thing really interesting, and and as with many other things, I, I don't think we have any clear-cut answers yet and, and uh, as we all know the whole saturated fat equals uh, high cholesterol equal equals heart disease has been questioned uh, in recent years many times over so so i think we should start to sort of look outside the box and and, uh, and consider many variables before we we point any fingers oh yeah definitely although i guess the other extreme of that that uh, we should just all uh, chug uh, <laughs> bulletproof coffee and put butter in our coffees and uh, down oh, yeah, down yeah, cream yeah. without any uh, restrictions i guess that's not a good idea either no no completely i mean uh, i think the more we start to process foods and remove ourselves from what we would eat naturally if we had free access to foods i, I think um, that that starts to mess you up so i mean butter in your coffees i mean butter is a highly processed food and and we know that butter causes some real observable changes in health markers, negative uh, changes in health markers. So, so yeah, I don't think that's a good idea at all. So um, how long should you or how long would you recommend people do this uh, experiment if they wanted to try it out and for what goals? Because I would imagine uh, gaining muscle on this would be <laughs> a hard thing to achieve. Well, again, looking at uh, the body composition data, I had one guy do DEXA scans, uh, which is you know considered of higher quality than just looking at weight. And, and uh, it's still fraught with some inconsistencies when you start changing uh, water uh, levels in the body. But uh, he did notice some uh, muscle mass gains and, and obviously pretty major drops in, in body fat. So I would actually recommend a zero carb diet for both fat loss and muscle gain but but most of all for fat loss and uh, and also for people uh, with uh, some digestive issues uh, I, I would definitely recommend it as, as if you have tried other stuff and, and various uh, other protocols and, and um, 
medications and without success, then definitely consider this. Uh, I also think you probably need at least 30 days to get through the adaptation period and to see the, the benefits that this diet can have. Um, some people, you know, depending on their, uh, their condition, they might need to go for longer than that. But, but yeah, I would say 30 days. I would also like to add when we're on the topic that there's a Hungarian researcher called Shabatoth. I don't know if I'm um, pronouncing his name correctly, but his website paleomedicina.com. He, he is is basically a doctor and a, and a scientist, and he uh, he has been saying that uh, through his his years uh, in his practice, he has tried this what he calls the paleolithic ketogenic diet for. Uh, on uh, over 4,000 patients uh, and seen some very impressive clinical data and, and remission of various diseases and, and obesity and diabetes and, and stuff. So uh, I think that's definitely worth a read. He has also published some peer-reviewed uh, papers on, on this, including a complete remission of uh, Crohn's disease, uh, which is, you know, a, a very... Um, serious uh, gut disease or digestive disease. So, so yeah, I think it holds promise for for a lot of things, uh, a therapeutic uh, intervention, basically. Yeah, I just looked up his website. It's Tot uh, Chaba. I guess you were close. <laughs> okay, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, he has some uh, bold claims, I guess. He, he has been cri- criticized heavily. I, I, I know that, but um, but still, I, I know also his his case studies and uh, some of his patients has been pretty vocal about it online. That uh, you know, the, their complete remission of uh, various even autoimmune diseases and and uh, I just think it it's sort of. The anecdotal evidence and, and now even some of these case studies uh, just sort of build up uh, to, to uh, and, and points in a direction uh, that we should at least be open to the possibility that something are, are you know we have basically been eating for millions of years or, or at least our the human species have been eating for uh, tens and hundreds of thousands of years uh, is, is something that even modern humans can can benefit from, uh, and at least for short periods of time. I don't consider a 30 to 60 day experiment to be anything to be worried about, at least, and it, it can potentially have some, some really positive, uh, effects on, on some people. No, I agree definitely. Um, the main issue arises, I guess, when the, these sort of people who have worked with a however large sample of, of the population, then they start to extrapolate those and, um, generalize those claims to all of the population essentially and i've seen that from vegans i've seen that from low carb guys like uh, well the recent uh, debate with martin mcdonald and uh, professor tim noakes i guess that's a perfect example of that yeah no i i completely agree i think uh, and i think we should stop debating this i think we should stop arguing online meaningless discussions about how everyone should eat all the time this is a phrase i keep repeating but hmm. i think it bears repeating because i mean and and any time someone refers to my zero carb experiments or articles, it's almost as if you know. Again, I, I'm labeled as a zero carb guy just because I did an experiment, and I'm I'm speaking of it as 
something that some people can have uh, some some potentially major improvements in their health and, and body composition doing um, but but becoming dogmatic about it and 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 you can see this it, it's it's funny to I've been a member of uh, vegan Facebook groups. I've been a member of uh, zero-carb Facebook groups. And, and on both sides, people are sort of throwing rocks in each other's directions or, or maybe even uh, explosives in, in each other's directions and, and sort of you know, almost regarding people as stupid or, or inferior uh, just because they're eating a certain way. And, and I think the whole thing is just ridiculous. And, and, and again, also just... just Having sort of to defend my my own perspective on it is is getting really tedious. I wish people would have more acceptance that we don't know everything. We don't have all the answers. I think there's still so much to learn that that you know try to at least stay open that that there are some approaches that can work for some people, but and, and stop generalizing and, and saying that everyone should eat this all the time. Yeah, I agree completely. So um. How do you think this uh, zero-carb experiment would compare to a regular high-protein diet, something that would also include a bit of cottage cheese, (laughs) just to fancy my own taste, a couple of eggs, maybe some fruit, and essentially that's how I eat during a fat loss phase. So um, what do you think of those, as long as uh, someone can tolerate lactose, because I guess that's a big uh, issue in certain parts of the globe yeah good question and uh you actually just described my own diet right now so so yeah i can fully support that you know i'm, I'm not e- eating strictly zero carb anymore um my my diet now is more in the direction of uh eating um you know a lot of uh whole unprocessed animal foods but i do eat some fruits i eat some berries i i have some oatmeal now and then because that's something i couldn't tolerate before but i i do like to eat it i still can't eat a lot of it but uh, i i can eat it so i enjoy eating it sometimes um i have some potatoes here and there and and basically i i'm, I'm just more flexible and intuitive than i was before and i i i sort of stopped being scared of various foods because you know this is going to ruin my uh, my body composition or my health or my digestion so so i definitely think that's a viable approach the only thing i i can i can say is that i have noticed when i i reintroduced some other foods that it's it's harder to control cravings so having more flavor in your diet and i and, you know this is probably one of the main reasons why the zero carb diet work so well for body composition and fat loss is because it's uh, very bland you know obviously you salt your meat and bacon tastes awesome but it's very satiating when you cut out the sweet and and a lot of the other flavors that that can trigger uh, overconsumption of foods so so it, it does make it slightly harder to uh, to control your calories um, at least on an ad libitum diet where you just eat to uh, to fullness or or to uh, to taste but um, i definitely think for most people this is going to be the the sustainable way to approach your diet and and not be you know locked into one approach but but uh, just be more flexible and and let 80 to 90% of your diet be uh, be focused on on uh, what you should eat and and the rest be what you like to eat i think that's you know a lifestyle approach that that most people can enjoy for the rest of their lives and and also feel healthy on 
Yeah, exactly. The issue is that most people treat it the other way around. They eat 90% uh, of what they want to eat and maybe the last 10% of what they would need to eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Exactly. So um, if someone tried this thing out, uh, how should they go about reintroducing uh, other foods, especially carbohydrates? Because I guess in a two or three month period would be some sort of a enzymatic uh, downregulation of carbohydrate utilization would be at least somewhat impaired well from what i've seen it, it only takes like three to five days the same time span as it did to uh to adapt to the zero carb diet to uh to go back to carbs so if you want to be really conservative about it start with one uh one, maybe two to three different foods that you enjoy eating or or you feel safe eating if you have had some real uh, issues before, digestive issues, and, and eat those for the first five days, maybe seven days, like for a week or so, and see how you feel. And, and um, then then basically just, just go from there and reintroduce two to three new items on a weekly basis. That's that's a conservative way of, uh, of doing it, at least. Yeah, it makes sense. And it would make sense that uh, we are pretty... Uh malleable i guess and we can adapt into either directions and uh, yeah yeah i mean completely i i think um, you know even food intolerances has a psychological component that that people become so scared of food because we're always told that this food is dangerous and that food is uh you know allergenic or whatever and and we we sort of think ourselves into tolerating less and less foods over time and and you know, it's, it's, it's been proven that the immune system and, and, and stress hormones are released uh, in correlation with how concerned we are about what we are doing. So, so, so definitely start to think about what we can eat and what we feel good on in, in, instead of being concerned about everything that we shouldn't eat. Yeah, definitely. And that's why I hate those those terms like uh, inflammatory foods and toxic foods and uh, the whole gluten scaremongering thing and all that rubbish. And uh, MSG is another one, monosodium glutamate. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, there's too many. I, I, I always ask this question during my presentations. You know, what is healthy food? And, and you know, people will raise their hands and, and mention like three or five different foods that they all consider to be really healthy uh, and i can always tell them well i i can find a study that one time or another has said that this food is dangerous you know there, there's going to be one study there's going to be one news article there's going to be one expert that has claimed that this food that you consider healthy is dangerous for you oh yeah yeah so so i definitely think we should we should just try to sort of uh, stop labeling foods as good or bad or healthy and unhealthy and start to maybe be more aware of the conditionality of of uh, any type of food any any food in moderation isn't in itself gonna be unhealthy it's it's uh, it's always gonna be um a factor what you're doing to yourself uh, otherwise uh, i mean your overall lifestyle and the amounts of it that you're eating yeah definitely so in the past i think you used to recommend the large carb feeding i think that was a component of your biorhythm diet i think i've seen some questions around this on facebook and then i think a while ago we had an interaction around uh, timing your food intake and uh, stopping earlier in the day and um the more i look into this and uh Bill Lagakos is creating a ton of content around this whole 
circadian biology and uh, circadian timing and um, time-restricted eating is another um, hot topic, I guess, these days. And Rhonda Patrick is uh, one of the big proponents of it. So um, what made you change your mind around uh, carb feeding before bed? And uh, do you still uh, agree that eating uh, more of our food earlier in the day is a better idea for health and body composition? Yeah, I think as, as more research uh, surfaced and, and also, uh, you know, I just, just felt more natural to uh, synchronize food intake with daylight and activity. But back when I wrote that article, I was a proponent of early evening, late afternoon training. And so I guess I wasn't, I wasn't clear on that uh, officially, and I also wasn't clear on, on that in my mind, that to actually make that work, to have the huge carb feeding in the evening, you should probably or and most likely have a workout around that time. Uh, and so I, I do agree that for most people and most intents and purposes, it's uh, it's a good idea to, to limit a high calorie intake late in the day. And by late, I'm talking like after seven or eight o'clock in the evening. And, and, and so if you're going to eat like a huge carb meal around 10 or 11, then, then most people are going to notice that this disrupts your sleep. So, so also looking at sleep research, I noticed that huge carb intakes could, uh, could mess up sleep latency and duration. And so, yeah, I guess many different lines of, of, uh, both research and experience showed me that, uh, the way Bill Lagos puts it, huge carb intakes late at night is more of a damage control than optimal. And by damage control, it means that, well, this is going to be a good thing if you have a late workout that's intensive, but maybe not such a good thing if if you have been inactive all day. Yeah, definitely. I usually that's what I do. Usually, I uh, I have a well, not huge, but a decent post workout meal. And uh, on the days that I don't, where I work out earlier, I just have a cottage cheese or some protein pudding or something like that. So I, I mean, I still, uh, I mean, even now I, I have some carbs before bed, but you know, it's, uh, I, I'm eating my last meal around seven or eight o'clock and I go to bed around 10 or 11. So, so it's still, you know, far away from bedtime. It, and it, it was, it was actually never right before bed in, in my, uh, in, you know, from what I did. Uh, but I, I did post, you know, in the evenings. And in the evenings for me, it would be like around 7 or 8 o'clock. Uh, but I do realize that, that some people will eat really late and then go to bed. And, and if you're young, active, healthy, and, and did a late workout, then I can fully support that. And I would actually recommend it. I don't know if you've seen that, but I created a whole series of infographics for Renaissance around sleep and and one of the things I said was to avoid a large meal right before uh, going to bed. And a couple of people commented, well, I eat a huge, <laughs> you know the, how it goes. Yeah, 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 I know how it goes. Well, this is what I do and you're wrong. Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> so um, how should we think of uh, annual variation or, or seasonal variations and uh, fitting our diet around that? Because, for example, I don't know what it is. I don't know how long... Uh, summer is in Norway but uh, whenever we get into late 
autumn and uh, early winter and especially during winter like whenever the sun goes down at like five i'm just useless like yeah. <laughs> any productive work is out of the window like after five six i'm I, i'm sleepy as hell i'm unproductive so whatever the creative work i gotta do i have to get it done in the morning because otherwise i just can't seem to do it and whenever there's light out i can work up to eight nine ten and and be fine so um that definitely has an impact do you think there should be some uh, variation in carb intake and I guess one other question that popped into my mind is should we bulk during winter at all if we take that uh, consideration because most people that's what they do they bulk uh, during the winter and cut throughout the summer and usually they are less active during the winter and uh, it would just intuitively make sense that they would need less food and the sun is out uh, for a shorter amount of time what do you think about that yeah all good questions let, let me see if i can if i can cover them um sequence here um you are really you know you you are right on point when it comes to how the sunlight affects our focus and and uh, our health and and everything and and um i think the further you get away from the equator the further north or south you go um the, there are some really significant changes in our biology and, and physiology uh, from season to season. So, so wintertime in, in Norway, if you go just, uh, you know, a few, if, if you go up to like Tromsø, where I just did a seminar a month ago, there's actually no sunlight in the middle of the winter. The sun doesn't come above the horizon at all. They, they first see the sun around January 20th, I think. And, and so they're really affected by, you know, what is so accurately, um, the acronym is SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, where you, you actually become depressed during wintertime uh, due to the lack of sunlight. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. And, and we also know how it affects vitamin D, uh, synthesis. And we know how, how it affects like insulin sensitivity and, and carb tolerance is, is also very, um, affected by, by sunlight and heat. And, and so e even back in the sixties, um, uh, the, the book Physiology of Strength by, I think it was Hedinger, his name is. Uh, Dan John keeps referring to, to him. I, I, and I read this book. It was an East German researcher that they studied people not only during months, but, but also years and, and throughout the seasons. And they noticed that during summertime, hormones would increase, strength gains would be uh, much higher. And so everything in your body seems to be directed towards more muscle growth and storage and anabolism. So, so I would actually use summertime to bulk. And, and I, I know this is going to be contrary to what most people prefer doing simply because they want to look lean during summertime for the beach. But, yeah. but <laughs> you, I mean, your body is, is, uh, is anabolic during the winter, uh, during the summertime. So, so, uh, and, and even ev evolutionary speaking, we would, eat a lot of food during summertime because food would be abundant. We would have access to not only animal foods, but also plant foods and, and fruits and berries and everything would be, you know, ripe and, and, and flavorful and, and full of nutrients. Uh, whereas during wintertime, it would be more natural in, in colder climates to, to eat all animal foods and fish. I mean, during the Viking Age, and this was before we had this earth cellars where we could store uh, potatoes and, and, uh, vegetable foods for winter. Uh, so, so we would have to eat what was still, uh, you know, possible to eat that wasn't rotten. And, and most of our diet would be focused on, on proteins and fats. 
And incidentally, I noticed that a lot of low-carb studies and keto studies seem to work better during wintertime in colder climates. And I think that's that's really interesting. And, and so I, I definitely think at least as long as you live in northern climates or southern climates far away, far, far removed from the equator, you should try to look at what is seasonal available where you live and, and at least consider eating more of that and, and maybe uh, not go on the sugar binges uh, during Christmas time, even though that's really tempting. I was just thinking that we have four seasons over here. So I was thinking how I should adapt my diet around that. Yeah. And, and again, I, most people find it really intuitive that during winter time, at least here up north, people intuitively eat more you know, fatty meats, fatty cuts of meat, and less fruits and, and stuff like that. And, and I, I would myself notice that if I eat pineapple during summer, then I would be fine. If I eat a pineapple in December, I would get this intense burning in my mouth and, and feel really unwell afterwards. Why, why, why shouldn't this be the case that, that some people actually have this really huge variations in, in uh, what they can tolerate and, and feel well on uh, from season to season. I think it makes sense. Very interesting. I definitely get my fair share of fruits whenever, whatever is in season. I uh, eat a ton of clementines and oranges these days. <laughs> and during the summer, pears and uh, grapes and plums and apples usually are, are uh, year-round. But uh, I eat a ton of fruit. <laughs> yeah, and again, I'm not going to say it's completely wrong. I, I just, uh, I have seen improvements when people start eating what is seasonal available while others don't even notice any difference at all so it's yeah. it's just going to depend on your age and how healthy you are and and again your genes I, I definitely think there's a genetic component that we still haven't mapped out there so i don't have all the answers i can i can only point in various directions when people come to me for advice and, and wonder why their health is so bad when they're doing everything that the experts are saying they should do and and, and it, it still doesn't work so th that's why i have developed all of these methods and theories and and, uh, and thoughts around uh, nutrition and, and also training i was thinking whether we should eat what's available in uh, in the land or what's available in a supermarket because <laughs> for example bananas i guess i'm pretty sure they're available all year round and uh, <laughs> they definitely don't grow over here so yeah and again for, for me i i don't tolerate tropical fruits very well and and uh, my my ancestry uh, when i checked it through uh, 23 and me and also from, from research I, I have a viking ancestry and my ancestors have lived in scandinavia for uh, several generations so that probably explains why tropical f fruits don't sit very well with me but i mean in small amounts you can get away with anything i think i also had this one client from um from iran and uh and he would you know he came to norway and obviously he hated the climate because <laughs> it was too cold he, he said even in summertime and he had some some very you know major problems losing fat and 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 uh, getting strong in the gym and and he just felt worse and worse and uh he had adopted the norwegian diet as he called it so just basically eating whatever was in the supermarkets here and so i told him well just in a, as an experiment, why not try eating what your grandmother taught you for just for a short time and see what happens? And it was like a couple of months and he reported back to me and, and had, you know, lost a lot of fat and uh, obviously enjoyed his food 
much more because you know he liked the food that he grew up on as well and uh, just generally felt much better and on the opposite side of the spectrum i had this sami girl you know the samis which are um, a population in the north of norway you know their their language is very you know it sounds almost finnish and uh, their diet is primarily meat you know meat and fish that's what they have been brought up on they they eat very little uh, vegetation or plants and she had been eating a, a very healthy, wholesome diet uh, with uh, like 200 grams of carbs. And, and she had been doing everything correctly and uh, still couldn't get it to work. She was training really hard and always suffering from uh, inflammation and, and pains and aches and, and digestive issues. And I told her, well, since you have been eating and brought up and, and your, uh, your ancestry is, is Sami, maybe you should try eating like your ancestors did. And lo and behold, after only a few weeks, she reported back to me and there was major improvements in how she felt and, and her performance in the gym improved and she, the fat just, you know, melted off her and, and she felt awesome. So, so yeah, do I think there's an ancestral component there? Definitely. Can I prove it? No, I can't. Yeah, it would make sense and um, not to go on another tangent, but this is the whole issue with the paleo diet because it seems, or well, it's portrayed as a single diet and there wasn't a single paleo diet exactly there were a bunch of paleo diets so paleo diet which paleo diet <laughs> yeah i agree and i mean there are genetic changes that happen through only a few generations it doesn't tie take like tens of thousands of years to to alter our genes or, or how we uh, you know how we handle and process foods just look at the lactose tolerance i mean in in the nordic countries we have a high prevalence of lactose tolerance which means that we can drink milk and feel just fine but in asia i think the prevalence of lactose intolerance is is 90 plus so i mean just just looking at at, at at that and and from from what i can remember i think this evolved over only maybe a thousand or two thousand years so so it's not in the in the grand scheme of things it's not a long time from what i've seen i'm not sure of the data but certainly the older people i know are fine with milk and uh, yeah for until a couple uh, years ago there were no milk lactose free milk products and now the supermarkets are full with them so yeah i don't think that's uh biologically biological need driven mm. Exactly. So I have one final, uh, I guess, two-part question, and both of them are related to sustainability. So first, um, do you prefer buying organic or do you just stick with uh, regular uh, fruits and uh, veggies? And the second part is, um, what do you think about sustainability for the planet when it comes to this whole uh, all-meat diet? Because obviously red meat is considered one of the biggest uh, factors, I guess, we could do or uh, reduce the consumption of it to uh, positively influence the sustainability and uh, of our diets, I guess, and the uh, health of the planet or whatever the vegan claim is. So what do you think about those uh, questions? Well, as far as the sustainability argument, I have seen claims on both sides, and I honestly haven't dug deep into that to to actually validate uh which side is true i think they're both true 
I think the the main problem is is that we we are becoming you know there are more and more people on the planet uh, every year and um, the the food supply is is uh, is deteriorating both in in quality and quantity. So I I honestly don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. The the global footprint and and I mean oh, the, the the climate footprint on on um, producing meat uh, the way it's done. Uh, especially in America and, and many countries in the world, is is, um, is is really bad for the planet. I, I agree on that completely. But there are also some, um, you know, the the way they they um, they grow corn and and um, and wheat and and all of the uh, the, the plant foods, and and also in terms of the energy these plant foods can actually. Uh, suppliers with it just becomes hugely uh, complex uh, a hugely complex mathematical question as well as you know our environmental um, you know in short i think we we should produce food the way we did a couple of hundred years ago when we did it like in a more sustainable way and in line with with uh, nature and and we sort of considered more of the ecosystem. I'm not saying everyone did, but I think we, we could probably, with the knowledge we have of, of how the ecosystems uh, function and interact and, and how we can actually produce food with less environmental costs, uh, we, we could sort of save the planet. But I think the food industry, uh, and, and driven by, uh, by marketing uh, demands, is uh, you know I, I think that's utopia. I think it's impossible. I, I don't think it's going to happen that way. So yeah, I mean to to answer your question, I I really don't know at this time. But for me, I'm going to make choices on what I feel best on, what I what tends to improve my health markers the most. I obviously fully support any type of intervention uh, that uh, reduces the environmental loads. On, on how we produce our food, so so I, I I actually donate money and I support the biodynamic farmers and and uh, organic farmers and and do what I can in in that regard. But that's the limit to what I can do and what I can recommend that people do. I, I think we can make that sort of food more both more ac- acceptable and and less expensive if more pr- people start to request that from the local supermarkets and. and and, and farmers can actually survive on their own crops, uh, growing them in, in a more biodynamic uh, fashion. Uh, in, in modern society, I think that's just really hard to do because the, the food industry is dominating. So uh, with regards to the organic uh, fruit versus veggies, then you would uh, buy organic simply to support the organic, which would be the more sustainable farming practice in your view? In my view, yeah. From what I know, that's that's the best way to do it. And again, that's an, that's an issue that you can see arguments on both sides. But... I think it's safe to say that the organic and biodynamic way of uh, growing uh, crops is 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 the is the better way for the environment. Okay, we could talk about that uh, for hours. So I think we'll just stop here. And yeah, I, I honestly don't have enough knowledge of that to to uh, to give any 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 good advice on that. But uh, that's what I do for myself personally. Yeah, and I agree with the whole. Uh, I agree with the message of trying to do whatever we can to improve the quality of our food and i guess the reach of food to everyone on the planet and that's why i support guys like kevin forta and other uh, 
engineers who try to engineer food that's healthier and safer and uh, more sustainable and I guess cheaper. Yeah, I agree on that completely. So uh, in case anyone wants to get in contact with you, where should they go? Maybe if they want to get in contact with you for coaching or uh, any other projects you're uh, involved? Yeah, if people want to follow me, then go to my website, borgayfagerly.com. Uh, follow me on Facebook, obviously. I have an official page where I post most of my stuff that I tend to share on my private page. But those are the main channels that they can reach me. And uh, there's a contact form there and there's uh, information about my coaching as well. Awesome. And uh, I will link all those in the description so that people can just find it uh, easily. Thank you. So with that, uh, we have arrived to the final question of the episode. And that is simply, what is your definition of success? Oh, God, that's a loaded question, I guess. My definition of success uh, would be contextual, I guess. But as far as success in the fitness industry, at least, I think it's when you can honestly say that you are still humble and you are able to make a living, at least, and um, that you are able to help people become better and to learn more. I guess my, my philosophy has always been, you know, try to save the world one person at a time. Because in, in, in uh, today, with our social media and, and, and uh, TV and internet, I think it's too easy to become lost in the noise. Um, and uh, the signal to noise ratio is becoming worse and worse on a daily basis. So success would be that you have a wholesome healthy message and you're able to reach as many people as possible and make positive changes in in their life yeah i agree completely and that's a great way to end the episode uh, borge i would like to thank you uh, for uh, giving up your time today and we have gone way over what we initially settled on so i'm extremely grateful and um it was an absolute pleasure to talk with you and I find your approach uh, refreshing and uh, there are a couple of guys like you but it's definitely rare uh, for people to be uh, evidence-based but also not uh, dogmatic I guess and not um, close to trying out new things so kudos to you and uh, I really look forward to whatever you're going to do next. Thank you so much. Uh, those were some very kind words and I appreciate you inviting me on to, to be on this podcast and I hope the people listening to this uh, got some clarifications and some answers and, and uh, sort of know where I'm getting from. And if you have any other questions, feel free to contact me and uh, thanks for having me. So that was episode 15 of the Master Engineer podcast with uh, Burge Fagerli. I hope you enjoyed the episode and found it helpful and if you did, please share it with a friend who might benefit from it or with someone who perhaps heard of this diet and doesn't know what to think of it or isn't sure if their situation would be suitable to try this. So I hope that this gave you a balanced perspective on it and uh, offered you some pros and some cons to balance a way out and consider whether you should try it or not for yourself. Now, I won't give you my usual top three takeaways, mainly because I am honestly not sure how many people listen until the end, and I have a hunch that most people just kind of tune out 
after the episode is over and don't even listen to my outro. So what I thought I would do is instead of doing these at the end of the episodes, I am going to list them in written format on my Instagram profile where I've been absent for a good week or so since my phone died and uh, as you might know you can't really post anything if you don't have the mobile app. So until I get it back I will be off Instagram and pretty much social media in general but after I do receive my phone I will start posting regularly as I did previously and there I will uh, share my top three takeaways from this episode and I will also start a new project I guess if I might call it that something that I promised a lot of people I would do which will be daily summaries of some podcast episodes I enjoyed so look forward to that and uh, summary to this episode too when uh, all the technical issues get sorted out so thank you for listening and we will be back next week with another great episode so until then hope you have an amazing week and uh, we'll talk soon